This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado's Ethics Commission has ruled that a complaint against Democratic Governor John Hickenlooper deserves further investigation. This complaint alleges that Hickenlooper accepted travel and lodging for events across the world in violation of state ethics laws. It was filed recently by former State House Speaker Frank McNulty, who's Republican. I spoke with the governor shortly after CPR broke news of the commission's decision. Have you traveled on private airplanes owned by corporations and accepted travel expenses <laughs> paid for by corporations, as the complaint alleges? I've been advised that until this goes forward, I'm not supposed to discuss the specifics of the allegations. Again, I will repeat, as I've said many times, I think it's a political stunt. I think in the normal course, as we go through the complaint, it will be proven that we've done everything we're supposed to have done and that the allegations are ridiculous, you know, not not correct. Let me just say that it's not the commission's policy that you can't speak about it. So that advisement is coming from your own folks? The advisement of to almost all state employees, I think, is when you're in a legal matter that is about to go forward through a process, either to a judge or to some sort of, in this case, a commission, that we're not supposed to discuss it in public. Now, you call this a political stunt, but unanimously, this commission says this is non-frivolous. If it were a stunt, wouldn't they have dismissed it as frivolous from the get-go? Again, I can't get into talking about the specifics of it, but the people that created this, Frank McNulty and company, created a, a nonprofit literally two days before they filed this. And the thing goes on for many, many, many pages, right? In all kinds of detail, a lot of it erroneous, but again, I'm not supposed to be talking about it. <laughs> You're just trying to get me into trouble. Our impression is that this was a political stunt. Now, maybe it'll be proven that they have the, the best interests of the state in mind and that somehow they're going to protect some great uh, harm done to the state, but we don't think that these allegations, that they're going to stand up. I mean, that is uh, pretty much everybody in my office who has looked at this agrees to that. Do you think this has any impact on your presidential aspirations? No. I think this is a, an effort to change the political waters. I think they're more concerned about just trying to muddy the waters of the, of the midterms rather than me running for president. I'm, I'm not running for president. I mean, I haven't made that decision. Thanks, Governor. You bet. Anytime. Democrat John Hickenlooper. Frank McNulty said his complaint is based on evidence that the governor repeatedly let private companies or individuals pay for his travel to conferences around the world. What we're most concerned about is the fact that he's been jet-setting nationally and internationally on other people's dimes, and no one has held him accountable. And finally, we were able to do the research that allowed us to connect the dots that he had been accepting private jet travel illegally, hotel rooms illegally, uh, lavish dinners illegally, and all of that is in violation of our state constitution. McNulty denies that this is a political stunt. The facts of the complaint speak for themselves. The governor either paid for these trips or he didn't. Uh, If he did pay for them, then all he has to do is present the, the proof that he paid for them and we'll withdraw the complaint. If the governor didn't pay for these trips, then he's in violation of our state constitution He accepted these gifts illegally, and he needs to account for them. The governor has 30 days to respond before the Independent Ethics Commission decides on the scope of any investigation. So you heard the governor on the phone after news of the commission's decision to proceed broke. 
Earlier in the day, Tuesday, we'd already sat down with him for our regular monthly interview. So let's hear that conversation now. Metro Denver is in the running for Amazon's second headquarters. You know this. The Wall Street Journal reports that the company has followed up with several cities. I guess a fresh round of visits. Denver seems to be missing from that list. Do, do you have any information you can share with us? Well, I don't have any information. So if if they've come to Denver, I haven't heard about it. Okay. I, but I will say that our Office of Economic Development, when they are asked to be quiet about things, they don't talk to me. So, so do, do you see these visits to other cities and, and think, well, gosh, maybe we're not in the running? Yeah, I think that it, it, it's possible we're not in the running. I, uh-huh. I know that there were issues around, are we too close to Seattle? Wouldn't they rather have a their second big hub on the, on the, on the East Coast? They've got a lot of issues that are going to be decided and, and kind of negotiated in D.C. To me, most people I've talked to think that either Northern Virginia or Maryland or, or Washington, D.C. itself are probably the, the favorites. I've joked that the only announcement more prolonged than your presidential one <laughs> well, and it, it's go is, on and is on, the Amazon second headquarters <laughs> announcement, which I, I guess is still due by the end of the year. Is that your understanding? Yeah, I haven't heard anything uh-huh. differently about it. Okay. I did have, have one wag who, who came up to me and says, you know, I've heard that they're actually looking at putting it in Aspen. I thought to myself, now there's a rumor. There's a rumor that can't possibly have a single leg. I want to talk about marijuana, which is legal, of course, in Colorado, but still a violation of federal law. Uh, The outgoing U.S. attorney, Bob Troyer, wrote an op-ed in the Denver Post recently saying that his office planned to crack down on the marijuana trade, particularly the black market. He said Colorado has become, quoting here, a source state, a theater of operation for sophisticated international drug trafficking and money laundering organizations from Cuba, China, Mexico and elsewhere. You and I have talked about this before. There has been some tightening over medical marijuana in particular and growing plants for others. But do you agree with that assessment from Bob Troyer? Well, he has information that I'm not privy to and I don't have access to. I'm not denying. Again, Mr. Troyer has information I don't. I can say that we we are putting more money, marijuana tax revenue, towards public safety and, and maybe intercepting some of this drug trafficking that's going on, which we certainly know there is a significant black market. It could be as high as 20 or 25 percent. But think about it, in terms of recreational marijuana, five years ago, 100 percent was a black market. But Mr. Troy and I completely agree. You know, having Colorado connected with exporting drugs in any way is not acceptable. Do I hear that you have doubt about Troyer's assertions or that you think maybe they're overblown or? No, no. Okay. Bob Troyer has access to information and data that I don't have. We do large scale studies and our studies don't agree with all the things that Mr. Troyer said. Uh, I know we've got a report coming out in a few weeks. That's where we really have to sit down and say, all right, Here's where his statistics come. Here's where our statistics come from. The difference is in scale. There's still a black market problem. And I think why get divided and, and fight over is it bigger or larger? Let's all unite and go after it. I'll just say that Troyer's on his way out. The new U.S. attorney, Jason Dunn, was confirmed by the Senate earlier this month. Is there a change you'd make that Colorado hasn't made already to address the black market? Or do you think it's a matter of time with the current resources? So, so we've increased enforcement resources significantly in the last couple of years. Uh, we lowered the plant counts. The number of plants used to be able to grow 99 plants. Well, that was an invitation to a black market. And that was something that 
uh, what happened before my time, but we probably should have gotten to it sooner. This, this was medical use. Yeah, but again, that, yeah. that was became a, a pipeline, I think, yeah. for a lot of the illegal activity. We lowered taxes on recreational marijuana for the specific reason to try and drive the black market, make it less worth the risk to get into the black market. And, and there's more we could do. A big part of it is just putting more resources towards helping local law enforcement officials go after this black market. And several of the places, it's interesting, a number of busts where they had outdoor grows of, of large-scale hundreds, thousands of marijuana plants, I think we have the ability at very low cost to get digital satellite information, uh, high accuracy uh, visual information where I can't imagine if you've got a couple acres of marijuana plants, it's going to look different from the photograph than pine trees. So let's take some of that information and go after it and find if there are these large grows, which several people have said, well, they're probably, we've, we've busted three of them. There are probably many of them. Let's go find them. To climate change now and a recent report by a highly respected international group that says the pace of change and the impacts are going to be even worse than scientists had previously predicted. In June, you issued an executive order requiring Colorado to adopt what are called low emission vehicle standards, really following the example of California, which has already adopted those rules. The Trump administration, on the other hand, has said it will roll back standards for more fuel efficient vehicles and prohibit California from setting its own stricter rules. Uh, why buck the federal government on this? <laughs> you know, the federal government, we worked so hard to get our methane regulations in Colorado. We're the only state. This was in connection with oil and gas. Right. It was, it was reducing fugitive emissions from all the oil fields. Now Canada's rolling those out. And yet President Trump and his administration, those almost identical rules were being used for all the BLM land in the United States. They're rolling them back. So that's strike one. Then you go to strike two in terms of coal emissions. And the emissions from coal, from burning coal, are not just the CO2 and the other climate change gases. It's also the particulates. If you've got a child or anybody who deals with asthma, then fighting for more coal, especially when it costs more to burn it now, that's strike two. And then I look at the, the low emissions vehicles, and that's probably the largest scale. That's strike three. Why once Detroit, and I have talked to senior executives at several of the largest motor companies. American said, motor companies. American motor companies and one, one import, and have said, are you guys pushing for this? Is this something you, you negotiate so long, you've got all your manufacturing lines of production in place? And they said, we are not pushing for this. This is coming out of Washington. This is a politically driven initiative. So that's strike three. My question is why, what does the, the Trump administration or the Republican Party have against clean air? And looking at climate change, is there going to be some accountability for the people that are going out and spending millions and millions of dollars to deny that climate change is even happening? If these scientists are right, and the study last that you're referring to, IPCC. the IBCC, they echoed and touched on again a lot of the permafrost. And I was unaware of how much methane is locked up, frozen in the permafrost. And now as that begins to thaw, that methane causes more climate change, 60 times more than CO2. We're putting that into the air at a rate that was unthought of even 10 or 15 years ago. What happens when these feedback loops get to the point where suddenly the cost to cities along oceans... As the ocean becomes more acidified, which is happening, we can measure that. That's clearly a result of climate change. What accountability is there going to be for the people that are actually making a profit? They're doing this for their own self-interest, and yet they're putting you know, the rest of America at risk. 
I want to wrap up on the election. So your administration's coming to an end and there's the race to replace you. The Democratic candidate is Jared Polis, and he has loaned his campaign more than $22 million of his personal money. You've had this job for eight years. Is it worth $22 million? <laughs> you know, um, and I'll tell you something about Jared Polis that's very interesting. It doesn't necessarily go to the heart of my question. Yeah, well, it will. Okay. I, I think that uh, most people, that when they get to running for governor or U.S. Senate, uh, but they have an ambition that's kind of always been there. And it's often ego-driven. And and I think I'm an exception to that rule. And in, and in that sense, I can see it in others, or at least I believe I can. And I look at Jared Polis. He's not in it driven to be the macho big shot or the uh, the center of attention. He has, and, and I've talked to two old friends of his from when he was a child, that even when he was a little kid, he was the one who always helped the other kid. He was, if the other kid was getting bullied, he stood up for the other kid. He's just, since his earliest childhood, he's been someone who wants to help others and do good. And he has, you know, he's put in a situation where he made a great deal of money while he was still in college. Right? Very, very rare. And he's decided to use that to try and make the world a better place. But the point is that Walker Stapleton has his own ideals, the Republican candidate sure. for governor, and his own reasons for running, which may be beyond himself. But he doesn't have $22 million. Oh, so you're right. I thought is that just, fair? It, is that fair? And I didn't answer your question. Is it worth it was what you first asked. Sure. Uh, Two-part two question before we go. Is it worth it, what, one? What, and two, is it fair that men of ideals might be on such uneven playing fields? So it is... Uh, I think it is worth it if you're someone uh, like Jared Polis who really wants to do good and put service above getting other benefits of life. I think he puts service very, very high. Now, is it fair that he has more money? This is America. And and we have gone back and forth. I mean, at this point, according to our Supreme Court, corporations are people. But certainly individuals who have succeeded and accumulated great wealth are protected and allowed free speech. So he has that right. Now, there is a, a initiative on the ballot this year that is actually going to address the fairness of this and say, all right, if somebody puts a million dollars into their own campaign. Contribution limits for the rest of the candidates would increase as a result. Right. By Jared, time, times Jared, five. Jared Polis has actually said he's supportive of this. Are you? Yeah. You're speaking of Amendment 75 there. Governor, thanks for being with us. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Colorado's Democratic Governor John Hickenlooper recorded Tuesday. We speak monthly. It might just be the closest race in this state, and that's the race for Colorado Attorney General. At stake are criminal justice reform and what battles Colorado will pick with the federal government and private companies. Republican George Brockler says his experience as Arapahoe County District Attorney, leading some of the highest profile trials of the last decades, gives him an advantage. Democrat Phil Weiser, who has served in two presidential administrations and who has led the CU Law School, says he has the guts to stand up for the rights of Coloradans during the Trump administration. Today, we break down their differences. Let's start with this report from CPR's Allison Sherry about their stances on criminal justice reform. The first thing to know about the candidates' approach to criminal justice reform is that they don't even agree on the problem. Democrat Phil Weiser. If you put someone in prison who doesn't need to be there because they're not a threat to public safety and there could have been another way, 
shame on you for doing that. Republican George Brockler. Before we start saying, hey, look, the end goal here is less people in jail. That's not the end goal. The end goal here is people complying with the law and not offending against victims. That's the end goal. Brockler, who is also the Arapahoe County District Attorney, says his big concern is how inconsistently laws are and the kinds of sentences people receive. One of his ideas is to make the laws less static. Brockler hopes to use the AG's office to spur action at the state legislature. So lawmakers regularly review laws to make sure they still reflect the current reality. What should the penalty for DUI be? What should we be doing with domestic violence? Should we have mandatory prison for this charge? Should we have habitual criminal charges? And it doesn't take a sea change or an earthquake to try to get there. It's just part of our, hey, we're going to continue to have this ongoing conversation in a way that doesn't require a movement. In addition to reforming laws every 8 to 10 years, Brockler thinks there should be sentencing reform. He notes there are people in prison and on parole serving vastly different sentences for the same crime. So if we could have shorter, more certain sentences, I think we'd be in a much better position to say, okay, what would be the appropriate sentence that we can all count on for vehicular homicide? Should it be probation or should it be we say, hey, no matter what, man, you got to do four years? Or how about armed robbery? Right now it's this huge swing, 10 to 32 years. Sweet mother of goodness, nobody will serve either of those numbers. For Democrat Phil Weiser, who worked in the Obama administration's Justice Department and ran the CU Law School, the rot of the current system is the skyrocketing number of people in both jails and prisons, a number he says has not necessarily corresponded with increasing rates in violent crime. He points out it costs up to $40,000 a year to keep someone incarcerated. If you define justice as put people away as long as possible, I don't define justice that way. I define justice as fair and appropriate responses that need to be informed by empathy and compassion for the victims and for someone who might have made a mistake. Now, both acknowledge there's only so much they can do on this issue as attorney general. The AG is not the boss of local district attorneys and sheriffs. The AG can't tell them how to prosecute or who to put in jail. But Weiser says he hopes to harness the office's resources to give local authorities more options and ideas in how to do things. And he thinks they'd welcome the help. The DAs and chairs are the first to acknowledge this system's not working, increasing incarceration rates again and again and again, without necessarily being linked to keeping us safer, is you know leading a lot of people to ask, what's going on here? How can we do better? I want to be part of those conversations. I want us to get the data that will help people make better decisions. Both candidates have other ideas on how to improve the state's criminal justice system. Brockler would like to evaluate how long a felony stays on someone's permanent record, if they've rehabilitated themselves and are contributing to society. He would also like to give prisons a financial reason to rehabilitate inmates. What if you had a facility that got compensated for the number of people that never come back, never get back into the system? And so your reward is not only longevity in that facility, your reward is I need to rehabilitate Mr. Smith. Because if Mr. Smith can stay out of prison for 10 years... That's a little more money coming my way. For Weiser, a big priority would be to tackle cash bail reform. He praises other states that have largely done away with cash bail. He says the current system is unconstitutional because it means that people with money get out of jail and people without money stay. We've got to do what New Jersey did, California recently did it, and ask if someone's not a threat to public safety, they're not a flight risk, let's let them out and not charge, they don't need to be charged anything. And if they are a threat to public safety or flight risk, let's keep them in, even if they can pay a bail. 
Despite how differently Brockler and Weiser see problems in criminal justice reform, both are certainly thinking about changes they would like to make, both to save the state money and possibly be even more empathetic. What remains to be seen is which version of reform voters will choose in a few short weeks. And Allison Sherry joins us now. She was just at a debate last night with the AG candidates. Hi, Allison. Hi, Ryan. What's another difference that stands out between these leading candidates for attorney general? Well, you know, last night's debate was a little more unusual. It seemed like they agreed more than they disagreed on a lot of the questions. I think that might have been because the libertarian candidate actually was there and the whole debate moved a little slower. But I think the overall take home here is that Weiser would be this unequivocal challenge to the Trump administration. It's what he talks about, be it on on Dreamers, LGBTQ rights, immigration. Here's Weiser. And at a time when our federal government is showing time after time a willingness not to protect people, it's more important than ever to have a state attorney general who stands up for the people of Colorado. And Brockler's definitely more quiet when it comes to the larger federal issues burning in the news every day. But he makes this case that he's practiced every type of law in Colorado and is more qualified. And he also made this interesting, last night he did, he made this interesting impassioned plea at the end of the debate for Polis supporters to give him a try so the state wasn't all one party. Colorado has been a state of great balance. And for the first time in my life, November 7th poses the real possibility that we wake up and every single hand is on on levers of government across the state are in the hands not just of one party, but a harder left party than we've ever seen in the state of Colorado. And that's not the state that attracted my parents here. That's fascinating because you have a Republican there who's essentially making a forecast of the race Mm -hmm. and saying Democrats might fare well. He's saying, I'll be the check and balance if that's the outcome, if that's the outcome. Exactly. In other states, attorneys general have made a name for themselves by being pretty aggressive in suing companies they believe have mistreated residents. I'm thinking of lawsuits against companies that may pollute or, you know, improperly loan money manufacturers of opioids, of course. Do you have a sense of whether either of these candidates for AG would fit that mold? Well, you know, not surprisingly, Brockler, as a Republican, seems more hesitant in suing companies um, on behalf of state residents than Weiser. He's told me he doesn't believe in sort of, quote, suing his way out of problems. Um, Weiser talks about the opioid epidemic all the time. In every single speech I've ever seen him make, he talks about challenging the opioid companies, joining the lawsuits, trying to get money from that from the companies and then building rehab centers. Uh, Some state AGs are also known for suing the federal government, right, as opposed to companies. Do we know if that would be true of these candidates? Well, I think that's going to really depend on who the president is, right? I mean, right now, with a Republican in the White House and Republicans in charge of Congress, Brockler doesn't seem to have any big picks, you know, any battles he wants to wage against the federal government. Mm -hmm. It's Weiser who's in offensive mode, saying he'd sue the Trump administration on behalf of DACA recipients and others he feels are being disenfranchised. But at a debate about a month ago, Brockler did talk about how um, he probably would have sued the Obama administration for how they interpreted this water rule called Waters of the United States. So, well, WOTUS, right? Yeah, yeah, WOTUS, yeah. So I think if the White House changed political hands during a Brockler tenure, I can see him sort of shifting on this front and getting more aggressive. Okay, so it will kind of depend on who is in the White House. Exactly. And of course, who wins the AG's race. Uh, who else can a state attorney general challenge? Well, they can they can challenge their own governor. You know, um, Colorado is is very interesting because we've had decades of split party power between a governor and the state AG. It's mostly been Republicans, uh, Republican attorneys general under Democratic governors. Uh-huh. Um, 
And they've mostly been copacetic and worked together on things. You know, even when a Republican AG sued a Democratic president like Attorney General John Southers did back in the day when he sued the Obama administration for Obamacare, Hickenlooper definitely didn't agree with that decision. He was openly against it, but he stayed out of the way. And, um, you know, in other states, though, Attorney generals and governors have actually sparred to the point of lawsuits. And with new people in charge, no matter what, in January, if we have a governor and an AG and opposing parties who maybe don't get along, that could definitely be a possibility here. Uh, I know that this is a very close race. Right. And that has been true really for for much of it. Uh, Is that a surprise to you? Well, you know, I I wouldn't predict the outcome of a race on live radio. I I think that's good. (laughs) But... But people working with both campaigns have told me their internal polling puts the two within the margin of error in most polls. Um, And, you know, I think there's two things happening. One, Coloradans have consistently elected Republicans in this seat since the 1980s, with the exception of Ken Salazar. But Ken Salazar served during Governor Owens, who was a Republican, right? So So that tension again, that checks and balance. Exactly. And um, but there's but there's so there's this notion out there floating among politicos that Brockler could actually benefit from Polis's perceived liberalism. I think we kind of heard that from Brockler, you know, last night Uh that Coloradans might vote for Polis. But in order to sort of check that vote, They'll also pull the lever for Brockler. But obviously, if there's a blue wave, um, you know, a huge blue wave in Colorado, that'll benefit Wiser. Okay, I know that spending isn't destiny, but how much is being spent on the AG's race and where's the money coming from? Well, this is a complicated question. Um, there are a number of outside groups that have popped up in um, from on both sides in the last few weeks. The Republican Attorneys General Association, everyone calls them RAGA, has been helping Brockler for months. They've spent more than $4 million to help him. The Democrats have an association to DAGA, which is popping up in different names in the last couple of weeks. And you've seen in the last 48-hour reports that they're boosting huge boosts in spending on TV on behalf of Wiser. So they clearly see this as competitive as well. Exactly. Who knew you'd hear RAGA and DAGA on the radio today? Thanks. <laughs> Sorry to be acronym here. <laughs> Thanks, Allison. <laughs> Thank you. She's our justice reporter at CPR on the very competitive state attorney's general race. One of the constitutional amendments you'll see on the Colorado ballot this year, at least proposed, of course, raises money for all the state's public schools. Supporters of Amendment 73 say it could fund essential services, salaries and support. Critics, though, fear it's too risky and may have unintended consequences. Here's CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine. To understand why schools say they need more money, you just have to click on any school district job site. Early childhood education instructor, paraprofessional, registered nurse, paraprofessional, preschool group leader, paraprofessional instructional teacher, temporary learning specialist. The reason there's so many unfilled positions, from bus drivers to math teachers, districts can't afford to pay higher salaries. We spend about $2,800 per student, below even just the national average. Carrie Kennedy, a Democrat and former Colorado state treasurer, Backs Amendment 73. This would be the most significant investment in education in three decades. It would reverse almost 30 years of cuts in education funding. Since the recession, state lawmakers have withheld $7.4 billion from Colorado schools to shore up other parts of the state budget. The hemorrhage of cash has left many districts operating at 2008 funding levels. Kennedy says Amendment 73 would stop the bleeding. Half of the school districts in Colorado today have cut back to a four-day school week. 
That is unacceptable in a state with the top economy in the nation. The constitutional amendment would fund full-day kindergarten for all children, would target millions more to preschool education, gifted students, and students with disabilities. Local districts would decide where to spend the rest of the money. Michael Fields is with Colorado Rising Action, a group that advocates conservative principles. This is a $1.6 billion tax increase, and really you have no guarantees about student outcomes. Fields says it's about more than setting goals for higher test scores, social and emotional development, and workforce training. He wants this question answered before there's any more money. What are we getting out of the education system, and can we prioritize our budget better? Yes on 73! Middle school teacher Bridget Goodwin recently joined teachers to support Amendment 73. I don't know if financially I can continue to teach. I can't continue to teach and live in Denver. And that's very frustrating to be someone that's passionate and wants to be in this career. And I just can't afford to be. She sometimes has to buy novels herself for her honors class. Other teachers say they have 34 and 35 students in their class and kids in school with unmet mental health needs. Adam Crapo. Three counselors for 865 students. It's it's really rough. So how exactly would 73 raise the 1.6 billion? Income taxes would rise on top earners. Those making between 150 and 200,000 would pay 81 more dollars a year. But if you make more than a million, you'll pay an extra 24,000 in taxes. Kerry Kennedy says it would rebalance a tax code that has middle-income earners paying a higher percentage of their income on taxes. So 92% of the people here in Colorado would not pay a higher income tax under Amendment 73, just the top 8%. For Michael Fields of Colorado Rising Action, the income tax... I think it would hurt the economy. He and Luke Ragland with the conservative education reform group Ready Colorado think it could hurt some small businesses that pull in more than $500,000 in income. When those high net worth small businesses and individuals face those large taxes, they go elsewhere. They're some of the most mobile people in society. Corporations would also pay higher taxes, the rate going from 4.65 to 6 percent. Michael Field says there are just too many unknowns. What is going on? What is it going to do? How is it going to impact us? I think those studies need to happen beforehand. For supporters, the time is now to make the funding system fairer. Kerry Kennedy says Colorado would remain competitive. Right now, we have the third lowest corporate income tax in the country, and Amendment 73 would bring us to the ninth lowest corporate income taxes in the country. There's another provision in the proposal that has to do with property taxes. Backers argue 73 gives property tax relief to farmers, ranchers, and homeowners by lowering and stabilizing the school portion of local property taxes. Opponents worry the change may hurt cities, counties, and water and fire districts by putting downward pressure on the local taxes they rely on. Educators say Colorado's schools are on the brink, with rising inequality between school districts. Amendment 73, they say, would level the playing field. And Jenny Brundine joins us now. Hi again, Jenny. Hello, Ryan. Your stories on school finance, including Amendment 73, have prompted many questions from our audience. And why don't we start with Barbara Brett? She heard your earlier interview with a recent high school grad who wanted to know if the teacher protests had any impact on increasing school funding. And in that discussion, 
you explained why Colorado schools keep asking for money. So I think it's important to lay that out first before we get to Barbara's specific question. Yeah. In short, state lawmakers began withholding money from public schools during the recession to balance the budget. School districts across the states, they cut staff and programs, and some of those haven't come back. So the cumulative debt or shortfall to Colorado schools is $7.4 billion dollars. This year alone, it's an $830 million shortfall. So think of it like an IOU. The state owes schools money because the Constitution requires a certain level of funding every year. And lawmakers took billions during the recession from schools to pay for other areas of the budget that were strapped. So state lawmakers have not been able to pay that back? No. This winter, they did make a $150 million dent in the IOU for the upcoming budget year. But schools have said, we're at the breaking point. We can't continue to operate like this. We've got to go to voters and try to get back to the funding levels we had when the Great Recession started in 2008. So in walks Amendment 73, this attempt to raise $1.6 billion in funds for schools. And let's listen to what Barbara Brett asked you. She said she can't understand what the relationship is between 73 and this IOU, the more than $7 billion taken out of schools. Is this new money for the schools? Why don't we get the $700 billion out of the state, you know, repay the system? How do the citizens know that it's going to go to public schools and not be used for roads and bridges like the, apparently the $7 billion was? So Barbara's question is an excellent one. It made me do some research. Uh, first, it's more appropriate to talk about the yearly debt, so not the whole $7 billion, but okay. let's just take the $830 million shortfall. It's called the budget stabilization factor, by the way. It has been impossible to pay that back with existing state revenue. What happens is when the economy is good, revenue limits under TABOR, the Taxpayer Bill of Rights, kick in and taxpayers get a rebate instead of it going to pay off the IOU. And basically, the state does not have an extra extra $830 million to give schools, or some would argue the, the political will to find a solution to this funding crisis. It's not there. Okay. And back to Amendment 73, make the connection to the debt. Yes. Amendment backers would argue that the $1.6 billion it would raise is, is really a modest ask compared to the cumulative loss to schools over a decade. Amendment 73 would eliminate the yearly debt owed to schools and would begin to add revenue. Districts are also struggling because, I, I should say, during this time, lawmakers passed many requirements on schools. For example, uh, you've got to do these new strict teacher evaluations, new academic standards, but they gave virtually no extra funding to implement them. So districts would be paid back to some extent under Amendment 73? Yes. Supporters say the measure would give each and every district what's owed to them from that yearly IOU. Plus, it makes some changes like making sure additional dollars go to districts that are serving students with high needs. Give us more specifics about what 73 would pay for. Yeah, so a few more details that weren't in the radio story that just aired. The amendment specifies that the amount of per-pupil funding would go up to $7,300. Certain groups of students would get funding boosts, special education, gifted and talented students, English language learners, and some more money for preschool funding. Every kindergartner would get uh, have access to full-day schooling, and the rest would go to local districts. Many say their top priority is teacher salaries. Colorado has a teacher shortage, and that's partly due to low salaries. Okay, the second part of Barbara's question I'm really interested in. She asks, how do voters know that the money raised by Amendment 73 wouldn't be raided by state lawmakers again 
to pay for other budget priorities. That's happened in the past. Mm -hmm. The amendment language says Amendment 73 creates a, quote, dedicated public school fund, and that can only be used for education that meets the objectives of the ballot measure. And there's also a clause indicating that they can't reduce the revenue towards education. Okay, it's like a lock on the piggy bank, Mm -hmm. I guess. You've had a couple of people wondering about the property tax portion of this legislation. Here's where it gets fun. Yes, get ready, folks. Um, So a lot of people struggle with this. Before we get into details, how all the pieces in Colorado, so property tax assessments, constitutional amendments, state law, interact with one another is very complex. But one thing is clear. Revenue from property taxes has been shrinking. In 1982, voters passed something called the Gallagher Amendment. You might have heard of that. It was to shield homeowners from large property tax increases. At the time, home values were rising rapidly. So over time, residential property tax collections fell. Uh, That meant fewer local dollars were available for schools. Connected to Gallagher. And so the state has had to backfill some of those lost local dollars. Yes, it's shifted more of the responsibility to finance K-12 education to the state, like you just said. That's meant more pressure on all parts of the state budget. Amendment 73, what it does is it tries to stabilize the dwindling school portion of the property tax assessment. So it would lock it in at 7%, uh, down from the current 7.2%. But without the amendment, it's projected to drop even below 7% in 2019. And that would put many rural schools and other districts even further into the hole. So now, they're trying to stabilize that. Right. And and this does touch on commercial assessments. But, but to residential in particular, backier, backers argue that this stabilizes that and then takes pressure off the state budget as a result? Yes, um, but to a question that another listener submitted through Colorado Wonders, how will the measure impact other parts of the local property tax? So Mm -hmm. the school portion is just one part. This is murkier. Amendment 73 only applies to the property taxes levied by schools. Uh, Proponents argue that Amendment 73 doesn't change how the property tax has been calculated for those other taxing entities. So that's things like cities, fire and water districts, But some opponents fear there will be downward pressure on the property taxes those entities rely on. So much interplay here, Jenny. So they think there won't be as much property tax revenue coming in? Yes. And I went as far as I checked with Colorado's property tax administrator. And she has said, indeed, it's unclear whether Amendment 73 uh, would... Uh, put downward pressure on the residential assessment rate for those other taxing jurisdictions, but still others, like those who write the blue book that voters get and those who did a fiscal impact of Amendment 73, don't mention any kind of impact on those other taxing entities. Thanks for being with us, Jenny. Lots to consider. Thank you, Ryan. Jenny Brendine is CPR's education reporter, talking with us about Amendment 73. And speaking of ballots and elections, we're going to talk about the blue book when we come back, but not the one you're thinking of. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Hey, I'm Jesse Witten from Colorado Public Radio's Open Air and one of the hosts of our brand new podcast, The Playlist League. What I love about this is it takes something as beautifully subjective and personal as music and makes it into a battle royale. It's a music conversation, but done competitively as we draft playlists song by song according to a theme each month. 
So if you like music discovery, bloodthirsty competition, or even just a fun casual hang session with some fellow music lovers, check out the Playlist League from CPR's Open Air. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Denver singer-songwriter Julie Davis has made music as Blue Book for more than a decade. Her sound is sparse, often haunting, driven by her vocals, upright bass, and live percussion loops. Davis has collaborated with lots of notable Colorado musicians like Gregory Allen Isakoff, Poor Lolo, Nathaniel Rateliff, and her own husband, Joseph Pope III of the Night Sweats. Her latest musical partner is singer and keyboardist Jess Parsons, who joins Blue Book on the new record, The Astronaut's Wife. They'll play a release show this Friday at Fort Greene in Denver. Julie and Jess, welcome to the program. Thank you for having us. us. Julie, you started Blue Book in 2005 after deciding to buy an upright bass, which you'd never played before. No. It's not the easiest instrument to pick up. I think that literally, actually, and figuratively. What drew you to the upright bass? Uh, The folly of youth, I guess. (laughs) Uh, I didn't If I'd known then what I know now, right, I probably would have chosen something a little bit easier to to handle. But uh, I just wanted something I could sing with. I had this idea that I was going to be a jazz singer, and it seemed like a good instrument to play while singing jazz standards. And then when I hired a teacher, he said, nobody does this. <laughs> nobody, <laughs> nobody does this. Well, of course, people play the upright bass, but what did he mean? Nobody I think does he this. meant nobody uh, sings lead and plays bass. At the same time. In jazz. But that's not true. There are, Esmeralda Spalding, there are um, bass players who do this, but he just had never met any, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) What is it about the upright bass that, I guess the subtext there is that it it deserves all your attention. Like, don't be singing while you play it. Right. And the way I play it... I, I, if I if I gave it more attention, I would play much better. I'm sure. <laughs> but, uh, I just try to keep it simple. Um, what is it about the bass? I think of it sometimes like a giant insect body up against my body, and it resonates, and uh, it's like a friend. Huh. That you hug, really, to play. Yeah. 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 Over the past decade, you've been busy with lots of other projects. You led bands like Bella Caroli, Fair Children, Seven Hats. You also toured with Nathaniel Rateliff, opening for Mumford & Sons. What brought you back to Blue Book? Um, I had a baby uh, four years ago, four and a half years ago, and I was not on the road um, and Joe was on the road, and Nathaniel was on the road, and everyone was on the road, but me, I was home with my son, and I decided it was time for me to redirect my focus toward back towards something that was very personal and that I could do by myself. Um, well, but you haven't exactly done it by yourself, no. because Jess, you recently joined Blue Book. 
Uh, your first collaboration, though, with Julie was playing nursery rhymes. Yeah. How did that come about? Well, the kids, I had just come over to play. We had just become friends. Uh, we got to know each other when we were both pregnant. Our kids are just a few months different in age. Okay, so you were a new mom at this time, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, very similar situation. And um, the kids were playing in the backyard, and Julie was just like, hey, I have this, these nursery rooms I need to learn. We should, we should, you should do it with me. And we started singing together, and instantly, like, we're, we both just lit up. It just was pretty instant connection. Would you sing us a nursery rhyme that you sang at the time? <laughs> <laughs> Okay. I don't know if I remember. Well, let's see. Uh, well, I, okay. Ba 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 ba. Black sheep, have you any wool? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Three bags full. One for the master, one for the dame, <laughs> one, one for the, the little. little. We could go on. Yeah, you could. <laughs> I, I wouldn't mind if you did. <laughs> Oh, that's just lovely. <laughs> Thank you. We're a little rusty yeah. on okay. the nursery rhyme front. <laughs> well, we are not actually talking about a an album release of nursery rhymes. Mm-mm. Let's go back to The Astronaut's Wife from Blue Book. It's out this Friday, and here's the track, Please Forgive Me. Please forgive me. are you pleading with for forgiveness on this? Uh, well, I, I think um, my lover, my husband, my um, the narrator's husband, it, <laughs> uh, where's the line between fiction and, and fact? But uh, <laughs> I think I am pleading with uh, my lover to forgive me for growing old. You need forgiveness for that? At the time I wrote the song, I felt that I did. Because, I don't know, I, <laughs> just just the understanding that, um, that I was getting older and that uh, maybe I wouldn't be able to hold his attention hmm. or that things would crumble because our bodies were beginning to crumble. I, mean, I don't I know. Having a, a child really <laughs> bro- broke me open. <laughs> Jess, do you identify with any of that? Um, Jess is a lot younger than me. No. <laughs> we won't say how much younger. I do know that there are a couple of songs on this record, certainly inspired by your experiences as moms. I mean, what what are a few experiences you want to convey to the world, I think, Jess? Um, I don't know if it's necessarily through the music as much as it is just in Julie and I's partnership of I think that is what I have found um, the most beautiful part of this is she is just so understanding of my needs as a mother I mean and whatever balance that requires yeah and just to continue to do what it is that we love uh, despite the challenges Um, is that hard at times yeah very hard it's exhausting <laughs> at times. It is. 
I want to be aware of the inherent sexism in the, in what we're talking about right here, because I feel like women are often asked the question, how do you do it? How do you balance? And men are never asked that, right? Yeah. How do you run a company and be a father? But women are constantly faced with that question about balance. I think it's inherently sexist for some reason. Do you, do, do you agree with this? Well, maybe that it, maybe it is inherently sexist, but I think our culture is inherently sexist, unfortunately. I mean, both of us, the reason that we, one of the reasons that we connected so deeply is because we're in similar situations, or at least we were at the time when we started playing music together, where the, the fathers of our children were on tour. And we are also musicians, but we were home with our babies, so... both for being with us. Thank you so much for having us. This has been so nice. Nice to meet you, Jess. Good to meet you, too. <laughs> Blue Book plays a record release for The Astronaut's Wife Friday at Fort Greene in Denver. And you can hear the band's CPR performance studio session at noon Friday on CPR's Open Air. Thanks for spending time with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Oh.